0: The Lord be with you. It's good to see you up on your feet if you're able to this morning before we begin preaching. Uh, We're going to take the words of the Nicene Creed on our lips. The Nicene Creed is 1,700 years old. This is one of the uh, clearest statements of what all Christians everywhere believe that we have. And so part of the reason if you're new with us this morning, by the way, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here. One of the reasons that we say this if you're new to the Nicene Creed is this helps locate us inside the wider body of Christ and inside the great story that God is telling. So if you're in the room with me here and also if you're watching online, let's declare our faith together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, We believe in one holy, universal and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. If you agree with that, say real loud. You may be seated. It is good to see you this morning, New Life East. Uh, Glad to be with you. Uh, This past Sunday, if you missed uh, last Sunday, uh, across all New Life congregations, we had a little vision Sunday. So talked about what the Spirit is doing in New Life Church as a whole. And then also what he's provoking each of the three congregations to, or each of the eight congregations to, rather. And we had three words that we feel like are, we're, that are definitional words for us as we go forward into the new year. And if you were here last week, maybe you can say it with me. First word for us is prayer. Very good. Second word is engagement. And the third word is invitation. Prayer, engagement, and invitation. We'll return to this all year long we did have our first week of regular prayer meetings at the World Prayer Center this past week. And so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 7.30 a.m. at the World Prayer Center and noon, we have regular prayer meetings that are going to be going on all spring. Uh, New Life East has the Wednesday morning prayer meeting. And uh, I'll just tell you a little report for you. They were phenomenal. They're beautiful prayer meetings all week. Um, I think between all eight of them, we had somewhere in the ballpark of a thousand people came out to all those meetings, which is amazing. So If you've got room in your schedule and you can uh, afford to join us for one of those meetings, we just love to see you there. You don't have to come to the New Life East one. You can go to whichever meeting is hosted by any other group. That's totally fine. And it might be that your schedule just doesn't permit you to be there, in which case I just encourage you if you're on the job or sitting in carpool or wherever you are, just pause during that moment and pray with the church. Even if we can't be physically together, we're joined together in spirit. So I'd encourage you with that. But we'll do that all spring, and then we'll kind of evaluate those meetings and what we want to change, and we'll have a new plan for the summer. It should be fun. New series this morning, starting a series called Who is God? A look at the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in keeping with that third word, invitation, like I said last week, it's a great series. If you've got some folks that you're having spiritual conversations with, to invite them to come and attend with us. I think it'll be a great conversation starter for you. But Who is God? In the Christian imagination, God, we don't just kind of throw a bunch of attributes up in the sky and go, God is like big and uh, smart and all of that stuff. But God is very clearly defined in the Christian imagination as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so over the next bunch of months, uh, taking us into the summer, we're going to take a look at each member of the Godhead through the course of salvation history. What does that look like? And so this morning, before we jump into talking about the Father, I wanted to take one message just to try to wrestle for a few minutes with the God question itself. Why does the question matter? Is the question about God just another conversation that we have about stuff that's kind of whatever in our world, take it or leave it? Or is it more pivotal for us than that? And I think that it is. I'm going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 16. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to Matthew 16. I'll start in verse 13. Before we open the scriptures together, let's pray. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee. Hail thee as the sun above. And so we uh, acknowledge that in this place, that our hearts already are unfolding like flowers before you. Thank you. For the gift of your presence in these few moments of worship that we had before we came to the scriptures here. We thank you that already you have begun to open our hearts. Already you've begun to soften us. The psalmist said like wax melts before the fire and when we get into your presence it's a little bit like that. We come and we have a certain shape and we have a certain look and there's a certain feel to our lives but when we come into the presence of God something in us melts and we're made soft before you so that you can press Jesus upon us. I pray that that would be so this morning. I pray that all of the places of our lives that are warped or misshapen, that you begin softening us this morning, oh God. And that you would press Jesus upon us. That you would press the kingdom upon us. That you would make us look like what we actually are. Sons and daughters of the living God. Do that by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. Help us. We are... Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to be together and to talk about these matters who is god I ask that over these next weeks and months that you would clear lots of debris out of our minds the scripture says that we take captive every thought and we make it obedient unto Christ and so we pray that all false thoughts about god would be broken all thoughts that are beneath the living god that those thoughts would be driven out of our minds and that you would fill up our minds and our hearts and our imaginations with the reality of God as he really is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Grant this, we're praying. We say, as always, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. The scripture says, when Jesus came... To the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Jesus replied, for this is not revealed to you by flesh and by blood, but by my Father in heaven, and I tell you that you are Peter, And on this rock, the rock of Revelation, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Thanks be to God. Who do you say that I am? Is the question that Jesus puts to his disciples. And somehow everything seems to hang on it. This is not just mere information, you know, like information about the rocks and the birds and the skies and the seas or whatever. But this, in the mind of Jesus, seems to be the pivotal information that encapsulates the whole destiny and fate of mankind, which is why he says, blessed are you. This wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And the gates... Of the hell will not prevail against it. I give you the keys of the kingdom, whatever you bind on earth about. So somehow in this knowledge, this revelation of who Jesus is, who God is, as revealed in Jesus, that the whole destiny and fate of mankind is opened up in it. The gates of hell will not prevail against you. And the kingdom of heaven, all of a sudden, the panorama of God's work opens up in front of us. One of the great historians of the church, a man by the name of Yaroslav Pelikan, died a few years ago. He was a scholar of church history, taught at Yale University for a lot of years. And one of the things that Pelican used to say was that this question that Jesus asks his disciples is simply the recurring question of humanity. And every person has to wrestle with it in some way and on some level. Who do we say that the God revealed in Jesus really is? And our answer to that question has everything to do with how our lives actually turn out, the shape our lives take. He's making there a broader point, I think, about the knowledge of God Which is that, again, the knowledge of God is not like the knowledge of other things. But the knowledge of God is the pivotal knowledge about our lives. And who we are and where we wind up and whether our lives become whole or not has everything to do with the way that we think about God. Think about what the Lord says to his people in Jeremiah chapter 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law where? In their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And then this. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all, what? Know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I'll remember their sins no more. On the lips of the prophet Jeremiah in the mind of Jeremiah, the whole fate of the people of God was bound up with their knowledge of God. Do we know God or not? We can go back to the question of Jesus. Who do you say that I am? Who is God? A.W. Tozer many years ago put it like this. I think this statement is worth meditating on. He says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about I think there's truth in this statement. I actually side with C.S. Lewis a little bit more. Where Lewis says that the most important thing about us is not what we think about God, but what God thinks about us. Right. And so what comes into our minds when we think about God is irrelevant if it doesn't match up with whatever God thinks about us. Right. But I think you can also turn that around and I think you can realize that whatever it is that God thinks about us is irrelevant to our lives unless our thoughts actually match up with the thoughts of God about us. So our ideas about God actually do make a difference in the shape that our lives take. What comes into our minds when we think about God really may be the most pivotal thing about us. Some examples just to illustrate the point. I uh, grew up in a movement where uh, tithing was very, very important. It was all that was a stated, understood piece of discipleship. That what good Christians do is we have a number of things that we render as services unto the Lord, and also 10% of our income is given over to the Lord. And we were very, we had lots of teaching around that, and we could tend to be a little bit rigid and dogmatic about it as well. And I do remember when I was 19 or 20 years old, a dear friend of mine went through a, he was going through a really, really difficult year. Um, it was one of those years that like, how many of you, when you were a kid, uh, you read the book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Do you remember this book? That was like my favorite book. When I, I don't know, if there's something about Alexander that I really related to, you know. He's like chewing gum in his hair and the worst tennis shoes and all that stuff. And then that line, you know, he says, what does he say? He says, I think I'll move to Australia, you know. And uh, that just like killed me when I was a kid, you know. Sometimes you just have a run of bad luck, you know, the terrible. And then my friend, he was going through like, it was like a year. Terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year. Everything was going wrong. Financially, his things were not working out. Job stuff was not working out. He had some health challenges that year that were, like, very difficult. Uh, his car broke down a number of times that year. Just one of those things. Was just, like, a string of bad luck. And uh, he was about 20 years old, maybe, 2021. And he was living with his parents at the time. So that's kind of a, for him anyway, it was like a depressing cloud hanging over his existence, you know, and failure to launch. And so he has got in the middle of this terrible year. And his mom one day went to the mail and she saw a piece of mail that was for him and the mail was from the church. And so she, <laughs> so she decided to open it and it was his giving statement from the previous year. And she opens it and she has a general idea of how much money he makes. And she looks at the giving statement and it's definitely not 10%, you know. As she, she goes back around him, she goes, son, this is why all of these terrible things have been happening to you. You haven't been tithing to the Lord. And so the Lord has, he's been removing his hand from you. You know, you need to get tithing again so that you can get yourself back in God's grace and God's God's favor. I remember him coming to me just so like, is that true? Is it true that when I stop tithing to God, that God removes his hand from me? You know, and I've talked him through that thing. And so the question that Jesus asks, who do we say that God is? Is God like that? That God is just kind of micromanaging us, micromanaging our existence and watching that we behave just so. And the moment that our discipleship slips a little bit or we take, we stray out of the way of God, what he does is he begins to remove his hand from us and we go, oh, whoa, 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 and then we come back to God and then his hand comes back upon us. Who do we say that God is? You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like an abusive parents, All right. So, but our thoughts about God, they matter, don't they? Been reading recently, I finished it up last month, actually. New memoir by Philip Yancey. Some of you might know the author Philip Yancey's written many books. Just a brilliant thinker, great storyteller, tells great stories about his life, always wrestling with his faith. And in this memoir, he tells the story of his journey out of the Christianity that he was raised in, um, died in the wool Southern fundamentalist kind of background, into a, a broader, more expansive form of Christianity. And the story is a beautiful story. It's also very painful in some places. And one of the things that he talks about was that his upbringing— that fundamentalist background of the Deep South, it was just accepted as part of the understanding of reality that in the economy of God, there are certain ethnicities that are just better than other ethnicities. And so for him, that was white and black, right? And so white people, God has just destined white people to rule over others and to steer society where society needs to go. And black people are not meant to be there. And he he said, that was part of my Christianity. It was baked into my upbringing. This is the way that we talked about it. And I, he said, I can remember youth leaders and camp leaders and pastors saying things like, well, this is just the will of God for how society is supposed to be structured. And you've never seen a black person, you know, like run a university or you've never seen a black person be a president of the United States or the mayor of a town, have you? Well, see, that's because that's the will of God. He said, that was just my, up- that was how I understood reality was that God had sanctioned this division of the races and the hierarchy of society that I understood at that time. And when he was a senior in high school, he kind of had this affinity for science. He was good at science. And so when he was a senior in high school, he filled out an application to be part of an internship program that was taking place at the CDC. He lived down in Georgia or something at the time. So it was a branch of the CDC. And he was going to work under this scientist that was an incredible scientist doing all kinds of cool experiments or projects or whatever. I don't know. But it was an internship at the CDC. He said, I was so excited to do that. So they gave me my reading ahead of time and the assignments ahead of time. And I did all that with great energy and great gusto. And then I went to go meet the guy that I was going to be working under, a man by the name of Dr. Cherry, for the first time. He said, I went to the building. I went to his office. I knocked on his door. He opened the door. He said, and to my astonishment, Dr. Cherry was a black man. And he said, something in me cracked. Here is this intelligent, well-spoken, kind man who also happens to be in charge. He supervises hundreds of people in his department. And I have been told all of my life that black people were inferior to white people. And now I walk in and I see this man and I get to know this man who's one of the best human beings that I've ever met in my life. He said something in me cracked and then he said this. He said that I started wondering to myself if my background and my upbringing, if the church of my youth lied to me about race, what else did they lie to me about? Who do you say that I am? Who is God? It matters, doesn't it? When I think about our country, some of the recent history of our country, a little over 20 years ago, terrorists flew planes into buildings in New York City. Why did they do that? They did that because they had ideas in their head about God. What God wanted what would please God, what God willed and what would make the world right. And in their mind, those ideas about God justified, in fact, demanded the actions that they took that killed thousands of people that day and unleashed a whole new era in world history, quite frankly, that we have been struggling to catch up with. So the question of Jesus, who do you, who do you say that God is? What we think about God matters. I think about just a little bit more than a year ago, January 6th, 2021. A whole group of people outside the Capitol building frustrated about the election, believing that the election had been stolen. And that angry mob stormed the Capitol that day, went into the seat of our nation's power, unleashed all kinds of chaos, all kinds of devastation, all kinds of destruction. Six people lost their lives that day. And that mob that went into the Capitol that day, many of those people were holding up in an act of incredible irony. We're holding up signs that said Jesus saves and carrying crosses into our nation's seat of power. People died in the name of Jesus that day. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says to us, who do you say that I am? Our thoughts about God matter. Our ideas about God, I put it this way, have consequences for good or for evil. So what we think about God is not some irrelevant subject matter for our lives. What we think about God has everything to do with the wholeness, not only of our personal life, but the wholeness of our family and the wholeness of our communities and the wholeness of the life of society. So then who do we say that God is? And the way that Christians answer that question has everything to do with what God has revealed of himself in the story of Scripture. Romans chapter 1. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to flip there. Romans that great treatise of the Apostle Paul, where he lays out just what the good news is that has come to the world and is transforming all things, the Gospel of Jesus. And he says this in Romans chapter one in verse one, Paul. He says, "A servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace, everybody say grace, and peace. Say peace. To you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's so much going on in this statement of Paul's, but what I want to draw your attention to is the way that when Paul talks about God, he invokes all kinds of different divine names. It's not just, bald. does not just, it's not just God, and it's not just the Almighty and the powerful one and all of that random or abstract stuff. It's not, nothing like that. It's nothing that you could have gained just by looking at nature. But for Paul, the name of God is threefold. He names the name of Father in this little statement, grace and peace to you from God our Father. But it's not just God our Father, it's also from who? From our Lord Jesus Christ, the same Lord Jesus Christ who is a descendant from David and who through the Spirit of holiness was declared the Son of God with power by His resurrection from the dead. So it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Christians talk about God, We talk about God in a very specific way. We don't just call him the Omnipotent One, the Almighty, the All-Powerful, and all of that. But we name the identities of God that sit within the one person of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so what is the first Christian claim about God? It's this, that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You say, Andrew, can you explain the Trinity to me? No. And I wouldn't try and Christians at their best, they don't we don't explain the Trinity. What we do is we acknowledge the reality of the Trinity. And we try to bracket out ideas about the Trinity that are less than the triune God. We say that it's one God in three persons. I don't really know how that works. The math doesn't add up to me. And yet somehow this is what we see as the story of Scripture unfolds: one God in three persons. And when we begin to meditate on one God in three persons, what we discover is that many other things about God start to click into place. So I'll give you an example. One of the things that we say about God in Christianity, John says this in his little epistle, 1 John, he says that God is, the word starts with L, can you finish it? God is, God is love. God is love. But God cannot be love if God is just some lonely being unto himself rattling around out in outer, outer space, can he? But love demands that there's an object to be loved. And so from eternity past to eternity future, before the world ever was, and when the world will be rolled up like a scroll, what Christians say is that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is love. That inside the triune God itself, the womb of the world is just the love that's shared by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I I can't explain what the Trinity is. But I know that somehow in the triune God, what you have is this communion of perfectly, infinitely completed love. There's nothing dark in God. As James says, there's no shadow of turning in God. There's nothing evil. There's nothing malevolent in God. God is only, always, forever love. The love that's shared by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this dynamic relationship that will never Cease. the Greek fathers of the church in the few, first few centuries, one of the words that they used to talk about God was that God in, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God was perichoresis is the word that they use. And that's a Greek word. It's two words smashed together. Peri, like circle, like the perimeter of something. And choresis, we get the word choreography from it. And they say, what is God? Well, God is the choreography, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Dancing around one another in an endless circle of love forever and ever and always. Can we explain it? No. But what we find is that when we begin to adore God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, something in our spirits comes to rest. We find a home inside that knowledge. Think about the great hymn of the church, one of my favorites. It's a great song for opening a worship service. Holy, holy, holy. Do you know it? Holy, holy, holy. Holy Lord God almighty Early in the our song shall rise to thee Holy 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 merciful and we explain God there? No. We named a mystery. And somehow inside that mystery, and you felt it in your bones, didn't you? As we sang that song, yes, God is like this. And then we come to settle in that knowledge. And our spirits awaken in that knowledge. One of the great historians of the church, William Shedd, writing an introduction to St. Augustine's massive treatise on the Trinity called De Trinitate. And he said this about Trinitarian theology. He said that Christianity in the last analysis simply is Trinitarianism. Take out of the New Testament the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there is simply no God left. Take out of the Christian consciousness the thoughts and affections that relate to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there is no Christian consciousness left. The Trinity, he says, is a constitutive idea of our theology. It's the backbone of our theology. And it's the formative idea of our experience. That what we experience in God is not just some almighty, all-powerful something out there, but what we experience is the Father and the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. He says the immensity of the doctrine makes it of necessity a mystery, but it's a mystery... Oh, I love this. It's a mystery which, like the night... Enfolds in its unfathomed, unfathomed depths the bright stars, points of light with which there is no light so keen and glittering. Mysterious as it is, the doctrine of the tr- divine, the trinity of divine revelation is the doctrine that, inf- that holds in it all the hope of man, for it holds within it the infinite pity of the incarnation and the infinite mercy of the redemption." We can't make sense of the Trinity, but we name it and we rest in it. And we find that as we acknowledge the Trinity, all of the other pieces of our experience and of the story of God, they fall into place. We come to rest inside of it. G.K. Chesterton said it so beautifully. He said, suffice it to say that this triple enigma is as comforting as wine and as open as an English fireside. This thing that bewilders the intellect utterly quiets the heart. So we ask the question, who is God? And Christians reply, God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then they take the next step. How is it that we know that God is Trinity? One of the things that's beautiful about the Christian faith is that we acknowledge that God has left hints and traces and clues of himself scattered about the created order. So you think about what the psalmist says in Psalm 19. He says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. night after night, they proclaim knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. When we go out into the created order, we see something of the infinite power and the greatness and the beauty of God, don't we? You go out and you watch this magnificent sunrise in Colorado and the way that it lights up the mountain over there, or you watch the sun descend beyond those mountains, or you look up at the stars and you see it all, or you have a beautiful summer day or a fall that it takes your breath. Away. And it says something to you about who God is. It's a trace of his goodness. It's a trace of his glory left in the created order. But, but, even while we acknowledge this, we also and at the same time acknowledge that just based on those things that you gather about God from the created order, you could never reason your way up into the full reality of God, could you? Your reasoning could take you as far as the power of God. Your reasoning could take you maybe, it could take you maybe even to an acknowledgement of the beauty of God the goodness of God, but you would never get to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just by looking at a sunrise or a sunset, would you? That has to be revealed to you in some way. And so Paul gets at this in that same little section of Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 3, where he says his son, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness he was appointed the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ Our Lord. When Paul tells the story of who God is, he locates that story inside a specific man, Jesus of Nazareth, who has a specific history that's rooted all the way back in the Old Testament. He's a descendant of David, who's a descendant far back before him of Abraham and so on and so forth, all the way back to Adam. It stretches to the very beginning of time. And then it also stretches through to the end of time. Remember, the resurrection is not just a random thing that happens to Jesus. But the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a foretaste of the resurrection, the renewal that God brings at the end of all things. So what Paul does when he wants to describe God to us is he locates God inside the story that God has told about himself. Number two, the Trinity has a story. We don't just believe that God is triune, but the Trinity has a story and God locates himself inside this particular story. So what Christians do is they search the contours of the biblical story to try to see the face of God. Robert Jensen said it so beautifully many years ago when he said that God is simply whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel up out of Egypt. God has a story, and so we attend to the story. Think about when you're getting to know somebody for the first time, making their acquaintance, you sit across a table. What do you say to them to try to understand who they are and what they're about? You say to them, tell me, Your story. But that's what Christians do. And every week when we gather together for worship, what we do is we immerse ourselves again in the story that God has been telling about Himself. And somehow inside that story, we see something of who God is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're seeing something of God. The virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling. Behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Behold, I make all things new. From the beginning of the story to the end of the story, we discern the bright, smiling face of God. We sit down with God and we say, Tell me your story. And God says, Gladly. By the way, this is what the creed is all about. You've probably noticed that. That what the creed is, is the creed is our understanding of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit embedded inside the story of salvation history. It takes us from the creation. We believe in one God, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And we get all the way through to we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come from the beginning to the end. God unfolds the meaning of of his identity, he reveals his face inside the story. So God is Trinity and the Trinity has a story, but then there's this, and this is maybe the most important piece of the puzzle, is that only God reveals God. Only God reveals God. And Jesus says it to Peter that same day that they were in Caesarea Philippi. And Peter makes the confession that Jesus is the Christ he says to him in Matthew chapter 16, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and by blood, but by my Father in heaven. If God does not want you to know him, you're not going to know him. But here's the corollary God desperately wants you to know him. It pleases God to make himself known. And we, when we attend to God, where God has chosen to be found inside this story, somehow our eyes begin to open to the beauty of God. One final story and then we'll go to communion. I remember years ago, I was in seminary and I was working at a restaurant. And there was a gal at that restaurant who was born and raised somewhat, kind of in church, not really. And then her parents sent her to a Jesuit Catholic university in the Chicago area. We were in Chicago at the time. And she, as part of her curriculum, she, was, uh, she had to take a class on the Gospels. And so she was starting to read through the Gospels really for the first time in her life. And she came to me one day, we were working the same shift at the restaurant. And she goes, hey, Andrew, you're um, so you're uh, like studying to be a pastor one day, is that right? I was like, yeah. She goes, so you know something about the Bible? Like, well, I'm, I, I don't know. I, yeah, sure, fine. She goes, well, I got a question for you about the Bible. And she starts firing away at me. She'd been reading the Sermon on the Mount. And she goes, you know that part uh, in the Gospels where Jesus is kind of talking about like what, God's will is. And he sort of takes it a little bit beyond the Ten Commandments and all that. I go, yeah, the Sermon on the Mount. She goes, yeah. She goes, I'm finding that like really, really fascinating. I go, well, that's cool. And she goes, you know that part in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says that if you look upon somebody to lust after them, but you don't really actually commit adultery, but you kind of do it in your heart, it's sort of like you actually did commit adultery with them. I go, yeah, I'm familiar with that part. She goes, well, I've always believed that that's true. I go, Really? She goes, yeah. And she said, the more I read the Gospels, the more I keep thinking about Jesus, he's right. (laughs) I just loved it. And you know, at that moment, I'm going, oh, snap. The Holy Spirit is unfolding the person of Jesus to her. And this is what I said to her. I go, her name is Catherine. I go, Catherine, I've been reading the Bible my whole life. And I can tell you this, that I have had moment after moment after moment after moment like that. And I said, my prediction with you is that as you keep reading the Bible, something is going to happen to you. You're going to start reading the Gospels, and this thought is going to dawn on you. And you're going to start saying to yourself, he must be more than a man. And she goes, I'll never forget this. She goes, I think that's already happening. Nobody comes. Nobody comes unless the father who sent Jesus draws that person. But see, the father who sent Jesus is drawing all people to himself. He wills to make himself known. (laughs) So we just ask for it. Would you stand as we prepare our hearts for communion? And it's not just the the knowledge of God that leads us across the threshold of salvation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if you've been in this for 50 years. Do you realize that you can follow, you can immerse yourself in this God for a lifetime and still have only scratched the surface. And the happiest moments I've been following Jesus all my life, the happiest moments of my maturing Christianity are those moments where I go, I didn't know that about you. And it changes everything. It's connected to salvation. All of a sudden we start living differently because we've seen the face of God. So this morning, family, Wherever you are in the spectrum, some some of you may be just exploring faith, you're on the outside of faith, you've been skeptical. Some of you have been in this for your whole life. I'm gonna invite you just to make this your prayer this morning, lift your hands. And if you're willing to pray this, then pray it out loud. Say, open my eyes, oh God. That's our prayer. God, open our eyes, show us your glory. Show us your goodness. Show us the God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God, the God of heavenly lights from whom every perfect gift comes, in whom there is no shadow of turning, the God who loves humanity so much that you take a body and be brutally murdered for us, the God who takes our sin and our shame into himself, the God who now lives resurrected with death behind him and invites us to be part of the now and coming kingdom of God, that God, show us your glory, open our eyes. And I'm praying over all of us in this house this morning, that where our faith has become dead and Moribund and stale, and it lacks vitality. I'm praying that you would blast through all of that with fresh insight and wisdom and revelation that we'd see the face of God. What greater thing could we ask? So do it this morning. We're praying in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Let's respond in worship and then Pastor Rory will lead us to the table.
1: almighty through your holy spirit conceiving christ the son jesus our savior i believe in god our father i believe in christ the son i believe in the holy spirit Our God is three in one I believe in the resurrection That we will rise This is it.
2: The Lord be with you, lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. One of the things I find most beautiful about the church is that it exists for two groups of people. It exists for those of us who have had this eye-opening experience with the God of the universe. It exists for those of us who have had this moment of awareness and knowledge and, and embrace and acceptance by the triune God of all things. But the church also exists for another group of people. For those of us who, who find ourselves in this room today, even going, yeah, I don't know. This God thing, the, that Jesus is more than a man thing, that there's a spirit that's somehow holy and moves. Yeah, I just don't know. The church is this space where where both of those groups of people get together and come to one place that God has established as his welcoming place, and that's the table. We're both groups of people, those of us who are skeptical and on the edge and and on the fence of, of belief, and those of us who are not just in But man, we have seen and we have tasted that the Lord is good. And so right now we come to this moment where we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his closest friends around a table, which isn't it beautiful to know that God actually wants to be friends with us. And he he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which will be broken for you. Whenever you eat, eat in remembrance of me. So New Life East, would you simply take that bread, break it and eat. That same night, he took a cup filled with wine and he said, this represents the blood, my blood that will be shed for you. What I love about Jesus in that moment is he doesn't look at his disciples, many of whom in the next 24 to 72 hours would completely disown him and say, yeah, I just don't know. He looks at all of them knowing what they will do. And he says, this is my blood, which is shed for you out of sheer love, because that is the kind of God that I am. Whenever you drink, would you drink in remembrance of me? So New Life East, would you drink? And now let us respond to this mysterious Trinitarian God by singing the doxology.
1: Praise God from whom all blessings flow praise him all creatures here below praise him
0: scripture says that the everlasting God is our refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. And I was thinking while we were singing the doxology, Irenaeus, who we opened the service talking about, he said that the Son and the Spirit are the two arms of God by which we are embraced by God. This morning we have been embraced by the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Would you lift your hands, New Life East, receive this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and it is always turned towards you. And may he grant you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Well, thank you, I received that guys. I'll uh, invite our altar ministry team to come forward this morning. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray for you. Remember, if you're new, stop at Connect Central on the way out. We'd love to meet you. New Life East, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you next week.